<laughs> hey, witches, welcome to what is now the second episode of our bonus episodes. We're calling this Cunts Unplugged, right? Yeah. Because is... that's that's the name of our first episode. and Bonus um, episode. Our first, yeah, bonus episode. And um, we think it's going to be kind of a, a lovely catch-all space for conversations that maybe are too long for the content of our regular episodes, but are too important to leave out of our sort of... Um, discography podcastography for lack of a better term so yes. we want to put it in our our library of thoughts and um and also it's a little bit more sensitive it's more sensitive maybe some people might find it triggering um you know like the word cunt is <laughs> triggering for some people and it shouldn't be and if you don't know why listen to the first episode exactly <laughs> <laughs> and on that note uh we're gonna take it away enjoy cunts unplugged and are you a good witch or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Last week, New York passed uh, a reproductive health care bill, New York State did. Um, that was pretty exciting and pretty basic, really, well and truly. Um, at the end of the day, the, the, the basic idea behind it is that, you know, politicians are, I believe, rightfully a little bit concerned with the state of our Supreme Court right now and um, the sort of uh, real notion that Roe v. Wade could potentially get overturned. And um, New York State is a state that uh, had legalized abortion before Roe v. Wade happened. Right. Um, and so the, the sort of um, laws that were in effect at that time got kind of overwritten when Roe v. Wade happened. And because that's the basic federal, nice, that's the basic federal sort of like mandate for all or what have you. And now that there's the real possibility that Roe v. Wade could get overturned, New York State has decided to take action and literally just update their laws to be on par with the Roe v. Wade decision since it happened before. Yeah. So it's just like rewording or I guess just making aligning sure that the wording. If Roe v. Wade goes away, yeah. New York and New Yorkers are protected and their health care rights are there. Right. So they didn't change a ton of stuff. They just streamlined. Not some to my stuff. knowledge, but also New York State still has um like well before this like late term abortions were still criminalized i believe like you could be on trial for mm. for right. some form of of murder or what have you um for late term abortion and so um i'll get into more detail about that but it's like people would have to go out of state to if they needed that yeah um and so then they still felt kind of a uh, stigma around that um but now that that's not the case and what kind of spurred me into investigating more about this um, is that there were some sensational headlines and um, very polarizing sort of super biased articles being posted by some people on my Facebook uh, feed that were just literally saying um, New York legalizes so that you can 
murder babies the day before they're born. <laughs> and I was like, uh, what? And so I was getting into some sort of heated exchanges on Facebook with, ironically, though not surprisingly, mostly men, yeah. um, about what it means. And it's like, I don't care what your politics are. You're just slaughtering children. And that's the... And to me, the whole basic notion is that in this weird world of of these people's brains who think this way, and it's not just men, there were definitely like women who didn't like older women who didn't know how to type um on facebook just being like oh this makes me so upset that women can just murder their babies in the ninth month of pregnancy and like why would you ever want to do and so in their mind there exists this whole subset of women who have these murderous urges who just need to be held back from them because, you know, they our whims are such that we can just decide up one day. I don't like my stretch marks that this baby has given me. I feel murderous towards this fetus now and eh, let's kill it. I think the idea is less that we're murderous and more that we're just too we're just too flighty and stupid to be able to who knows like, what it is make but, but it's basically like who these evil people who are killing their babies and I tried to just reasonably be like that's not what happens. That's not what late-term abortions are for. Uh, you seem to be working under the apprehension that that that's that people are just not able to decide whether or not they want to have a baby, and then they decide at literally the last second, when statistically that's just not what's happening. Yeah. And and you're making a mountain out of a, a molehill. Like, of course, it's a very nuanced issue. And there's a lot of questions th- for each personal individual person who finds himself in a situation yeah. where they maybe need to cross that bridge or not. Yeah. Anyway, I found this really great article that uh, it's from the, uh, the New Yorker. Okay. And it's... Uh, from January 19th, written by Gia Tolentino. Um, and it's it says, How abortion law in New York will change and how it won't. In the late spring of 2016, Erica Christensen was 31 weeks pregnant and found out that the baby she was carrying would be unable to survive outside the womb. Her doctor told her that he was, quote, incompatible with life. Christensen Whoa. and her husband wanted a child desperately. They called him Spartacus because of how hard he seemed to be fighting. But she decided immediately to terminate the pregnancy. If the child was born, he would suffer and would not live long at all. She wanted to minimize his suffering to whatever extent that she could. She lived in New York, a state where, since 2014, an estimated 25 to 27 percent of pregnancies end in abortion. That's How, What's the percent? 25 to 27 percent. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which might be a horrifying fact for quote-unquote pro-lifers. Anti, anti-choice people. Of course. Yeah. Uh, abortion was legalized in New York in 1970, three years before Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade. Abortion was a crime in most other states. In New York, it became a crime with major exceptions. It's still regulated in the criminal code. Mm. Which, mm-hmm. And Christensen learned it's a crime in New York if an abortion is performed after a woman is 24 weeks pregnant, unless the mother's life is in immediate jeopardy. Oh, even though the baby in her womb would not be able to live outside of it, she would have to go elsewhere to have an abortion. We would rather this baby suffer than allow you to abort it. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
um, politicians had been attempting for nearly a decade to pass a law called the Reproductive Health Act, which would remove abortion from New York's criminal code and codify the protections of Roe v. Wade, which affirms a woman's right to an abortion with limits in state law. Mm. The RHA had been approved multiple times by the Democrat-controlled state assembly, but had never passed their state senate, which was controlled by Republicans. Christensen and her medical team made arrangements for her to travel to Colorado, where abortion is essentially regulated like any other medical procedure. With the help from her mother, she scrounged up more than $10,000 to pay for the procedure and the trip. Ugh. In Boulder, of course, a doctor named Warren Hearn administered an injection that stopped her baby's heart, but prevented her from bleeding and going into labor. Whoa. Afterward, while waiting for her flight, she could not help feeling as if what she had done was shameful and illegal. She flew back to New York and had a physically excruciating stillbirth at a hospital. Hmm. So the baby's heart had already stopped beating and she still had to like, I, I read this article, it was on Jezebel, this woman where people were congratulating her on her pregnancy after it was terminated because the baby, the, the body of the baby was still in her uterus. That is so sad. And she was like constantly being reminded because other people were like, oh, when too, and she, she knew that it was over. Yeah. And it was also heartbreak because she knew it was over even before she terminated the pregnancy, you know. And she still had to give birth. She still had to give birth. Mm -hmm. A week and a half later, she emailed me. I was working at the website Jezebel at the time, which often publishes stories about abortion law. Christensen wanted to describe what had happened to her. When we spoke on the phone, her milk was still coming in. Her baseline experience of pregnancy had been punishing to begin with, and the New York law had made it so much worse. When New York first legalized abortion in 1970, it was one of only four states where the practice was legal. Of the four, New York's law was the most liberal, as it had no residency requirement. Between July of 1970 and January of 1973, roughly 350,000 out-of-state abortion patients came to New York. In the first two years after the state law passed, 60% of women who had abortions in New York came from out-of-state. New York used to be an oasis, Katie Watson told me recently. Watson is a professor and bioethicist at Northwestern, a former lawyer of the ACLU of Illinois and author of Scarlet A, The Ethics, Law, and Politics of Ordinary Abortion. It changed things nationally, she said of New York State, and it never updated its statute. Hmm. The vast majority of abortions take place in the first trimester. Fewer than 10% of abortions occur at 14 weeks or later which is a very small percentage. Yes. And according to the Guttmacher Institute, only slightly more than 1% of abortions are performed at 21 weeks or later. Such a small number. Given how rare late-term abortion is, few elected officials are willing to risk the political costs of making it a cause. Late-term abortion makes many people deeply uncomfortable. At that point in a pregnancy, we're no longer talking about a lime-sized fetus that hardly resembles a person. Right. Doctors who perform late-term abortions have wrestled with the profound difficulties of fetal personhood. They have arguably done so to a greater extent than anyone else. Several years ago, I interviewed Dr. Susan Robinson, a now-retired late-term abortion provider in New Mexico, who appeared in the documentary After Tiller about the only four doctors in the U.S. who, at the time the film was made, openly performed late-term abortions. Ugh, openly. Four providers, though. Oh, my God. Dr. George Tiller, who previously had been part of that group, was murdered by an anti-abortion activist in 2009. Robinson told me that in her practice, she used whatever terms her patients used. If she refers to it as her baby, I'll refer to it as her baby, she said. If she's named the baby, I'll use the baby's name. She would ask patients, particularly those who were there because of fetal anomalies, if they wanted to hold their baby, if they wanted footprints. She would cry with them and pray with them. 
I mean, imagine being six months pregnant and finding out your baby is missing half of its brain and you've got this nursery you've painted at home. You're ready to become a parent. I don't want them to go home from the procedure with absolutely nothing to remember and honor the baby in its birth, Robinson said. I was in my mid-20s when I saw this documentary, and it was the first time I'd really thought about late-term abortion. I was struck by Robinson's aura of sorrowful compassion. She spent every day with an ethical question that many people abhor. I asked her how she drew her own lines, if she ever refused to perform an abortion where a woman's fetus was healthy. The calculus was hard, she said. Sometimes the compelling factor was that the patient was 11 years old. But what if the patient were 15 or 16? What's the ethical difference between doing an abortion at 29 and 32 weeks? She, She would ask herself, weighing each situation. She'd once had a patient from France, she told me, who came to her at 35 weeks and she turned that woman down. It wouldn't be safe, she said. Since the interview, I've come to think that understanding late-term abortion is a key to understanding abortion and reproduction generally. For people who believe that abortion is a medical procedure that a woman chooses to have or not to have in consultation with her doctor, why would we restrict abortion in our legal codes at all? The decision to restrict abortion in the legal code is based on the idea that there are people who want to kill babies and the law exists to prevent killing. Yeah. The conviction that we should instead regulate uh, the conviction that we should instead regulate abortion medically is rooted in the proposition that late term abortions happen not because women and doctors want to kill babies, but because circumstances conspire to make late term abortions necessary and that the women who are in these situations and their doctors are the people best suited to decide when those circumstances have arrived. Katrina Kimport, a research sociologist and associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics. Yes, but I had a text message come down right at that moment. (laughs) Uh, Of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Scientists at the University of California, San Francisco, has over the past couple years been conducting the most comprehensive research on late-term abortion to date. People have certain assumptions about late-term abortion, she told me. They imagine a woman spontaneously getting cold feet in her third trimester. That's what we were talking about. Yeah. Or an indecisive dawdler who decides on a whim at 27 weeks that she's simply done. Yeah. But in reality, Kimport told me, these are people who are planning to continue the pregnancy and obtained a piece of vital information that didn't that made the change. They're people who didn't know they were pregnant, people with other existing physical conditions, or people without typical symptoms who then knew they didn't want to continue it. And then a series of obstacles pushed them over the line. For Kimport and other advocates for abortion access, a woman's ability to decide if and when she becomes a mother is dependent not just on abortion rights, but on a continuum of reproductive health access. Restrictions on contraception, high co-pays, insurance hoops, a lack of local clinics that provide birth control, produce more unwanted pregnancies, and thus increase the number of abortions. Restrictions on abortion providers, including mandatory waiting periods, so-called trap laws, and fetal pain laws, are intended to cause women to give up on getting abortions, but in many cases, they simply ensure that abortions will be performed later than women want them to be performed. In the study that Kimport conducted with Diana Green Foster, her uh, her colleague at UCSF, women who sought late-term abortions were 12 weeks pregnant on average when they discovered the pregnancy. Women who sought first trimester abortions were five weeks along on average. Odile Scalette, the director at the Bridget Alliance, a new nonprofit that helps women travel to and from New York in order to obtain abortions, told me the majority of women they had served so far were New Yorkers who needed to leave the state for late term abortions. We expect people to know immediately when they're pregnant and to know exactly how to handle it, uh, Scalette said. 
We don't take into account possibility of ambivalence, that they're minors or that they have to figure out how to take off work, get childcare, or that they might be in a coercive, unsupportive, or abusive relationship, or that they may not have the financial or logistical or bodily autonomy to access real choice at all. Yeah. After speaking with Christensen in 2016, I described and edited our conversation and posted it on Jezebel. To my surprise and to Christensen's, more than a million people read the piece within the week. Oof. Dozens of women wrote to me, telling me about their own late-term abortions. I forwarded their emails to Christensen, who had used a pseudonym for the interview. A social worker at Mount Sinai, the hospital where she had delivered, also passed along emails for her from women who needed to terminate a pregnancy in their third trimester. Recently, I asked her about her decision to speak with me and about everything that's happened to her since. I called the clinic before I talked to you, she said, and asked if there was anything you'd like me or they'd like me not to say. And Dr. Hearn grabbed the phone and he told me with all this urgency, Erica, you don't need to ask permission from anyone. It's your story. In the subsequent correspondence with women who emailed her, she called them her sad pen pals. She repeated his counsel. They don't need to rationalize their decisions to go to her or to anyone. She started to consider becoming a pro-choice activist under her real name. Any fear I had about being attacked, being called a murderer, was trumped by not wanting people to think I was ashamed. A few months after the piece was published, Catherine Boddy, a senior policy counsel at the New York Civil Liberties Union, asked me if she she could contact the woman in the interview. She got in touch with Christensen and told her about the Reproductive Health Act. In January 2017, Christensen did her first public event in support of the RHA. A few weeks later, she and her husband, Garen Marshall, went to Albany to talk to legislators. They recently found out she was pregnant again. They put a face on the issue. Um, It changes the game when lawmakers are speaking to people who have been impacted by law. Christensen and Marshall had moved to Baltimore, but they trekked to Albany eight times during New York's 2017 to 2018 legislative session to lobby for the bill, sometimes telling their story a dozen times a day. In April 2017, Christensen gave birth to a cherubic baby girl named Pepper. Pepper! One month later, Marshall built the website rhavote.com. In early 2018, the family went on a tour of upstate cities to talk to people at events for congressional and state Senate candidates. In the midterms, Democrats picked eight uh, picked up eight state Senate seats, unseated five incumbents, and won a 40 to 23 majority in the chamber. Most of the newly elected Democrats had done an event in support of the RHA. Soon after the midterms, Governor Andrew Cuomo issued a statement about the legislative priorities for his third term. With the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, the federal assault on women's reproductive rights had extended to a Supreme Court that threatens to roll back Roe v. Wade, the statement read. Cuomo insisted that both the RHA and the Comprehensive Contraception Coverage Act should be passed during the first 30 days of the new term. The RHA was written to garner bipartisan support so it could pass a conservative-controlled Senate initially. It legalized late-term abortions like Christensen's that involved the viability of a fetus. But with strong Democratic majority, there was a new question to consider. Did the political will exist to go further than Roe Mm. uh, and affirm a woman's right to an abortion with no legal restrictions? I'm not sure that people, and specifically I mean pro-choice people who believe in limits, which is a lot of people, understand the full complexity of the issue Christensen sold me. The facts of her case, she said, lent themselves to sympathy, even among religious conservatives. She was a middle-class white woman who wanted to be a mother, but she didn't see her abortion as a tragedy. She felt lucky that she was able to get it. And the same goes for cases that the RHA doesn't cover, cases that don't seem as sympathetic. The woman from a rural area who didn't find out she was pregnant until 17 weeks, who has three kids already and no travel support. Do we leave these women out? And if we do leave them out, do we at least understand what we're doing? Christensen said that because of her year of intense hormonal fluctuations, she didn't even know that she was pregnant with Pepper until she was 16 weeks along. Whoa. 
The RHA is a huge, enormously significant, long-awaited correction, she said. If it passes exactly as is, it would be a huge step in the right direction. But in a room full of people who trust women, I don't know why we would want to only trust them in specific circumstances. And I'm afraid that if the RHA passes, no one will be ready to talk about abortion in New York again until we're dead. But we're certainly going to try. Uh, In the end, the bill's language was expanded. A memo at the top of the bill recognizes a woman's fundamental right to access to legal, safe abortion, but its substance remained largely the same. Um, we have to understand abortion is an equal rights issue, Watson, the Northwestern professor, told me. Only women can have the consequences of an unwanted pregnancy after sex or people with uteruses. Um, that's what, how I would have amended that. Yeah. She was interested, she said, in moving from the politics of sympathy to the politics of respect. The politics of sympathy holds that a woman gets to have an abortion because it's justified. The politics of respect would say that the pregnant woman determines the moral status of her fetus or embryo and weighs that assessment against her own reasoning. Really, she added, her preference was to take the law out of the picture. Why is later abortion not just a matter of what doctors would or wouldn't do? While I was writing this piece, Christensen sent me an email. She included a video of Pepper, who is 19 months old now, in rainbow socks, playing with her mother's dogs. As other states grow more and more restrictive, we're going to have more and more people coming to New York, she wrote. Do we want them to scramble over the state line and feel like they're begging for help? Or do we want them to see there's no shame here and that they're supported in their decisions? After her abortion, she said, and in everything that followed, she had realized she was good at talking to people about difficult things. And we need to have uh, those harder conversations, she said. We need to ask people to work through and maybe live with their discomfort with this issue. We need people to understand that they may have to exchange some of their comfort in order to afford women real dignity and real trust. Wow. Yeah, the framing of it has been has been bastardized so much over the years on purpose, obviously. Mm -hmm. In order to confuse even even pro-choice people, even people who believe that abortion should be accessible in some capacity, even people who believe in that are are confused by all of the, you know, I hate to use this phrase at this point, but the fake news that gets circulated about it. I mean, if you're if you're not putting a face to it and you're not actually being asked to consider the real life circumstances that these women are in when when they have to seek out an, uh, an abortion of that kind, then you're free to just sit there and go, you know, you're, you're free to sit there and do exactly what we do to potential candidates for the presidency and, you know, women in positions of, of power or <laughs> women who are, you know, we're, we're hoping that they will take responsibility for something, et cetera, et cetera. Like, we don't trust women as a society. We just don't. And, to, and Yeah, especially not to make a decision. So, to, yeah. So to be like, yes, we trust you implicitly to make this decision, period, end of story, because we understand the circumstances around it is unheard of. Like, we, when are we going to get to that point? I don't know. I, I would love to see it happen because I think that this, what's happening with all of this is so much clearer in reality than we make it through our arguments over it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i don't know 
And uh, yeah, again, it's still it's super nuanced. And like I we everybody, every person who's not a psychopath doesn't want to kill babies like that's not what this is about ever no it's just not but women can't be trusted <laughs> i mean like if you break it down to its very simple parts it's not actually about it, it's not about like child murder i mean it is because because that's an issue on you know the the on both ends of the spectrum with the elderly and euthanasia and and you know yes. all of this yes but i think so much of the abortion debate and we saw this with agna dicey mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. with that with that episode where like there's a control element that we don't talk about where where women are not trusted and somebody wants to make sure that they are being controlled yes i mean one of the things that is an interesting comment that came up And one of the discussions I was having on Facebook was this guy tried to make this very extreme connection where he was like, this reminds me of when the Nazis started killing Down syndrome babies the moment that they were born. Like, what's what's there to stop us now from like just doing that? Why don't we just stop like start, you know, killing people who are, you know, we don't deem you know, whatever the fuck. And I'm like, first of all, that's not what this is at all at all that's nobody's just no but no this is a every single individual case is for each individual person to figure out everyone's life is different everyone's situation is different there's if you have to compare women to nazis in order to make your point then you're not making your point i mean they're basically just saying that like if you decriminalize abortion in all cases what's to stop like what's where's the lie right and it's like well that's between a woman and her fucking doctor to decide right like her doctor's not gonna do it they're not gonna sign off on it if because it's like- that's what that's what they were saying with like what it, you know there's a you know a late term baby fetus whatever but the mother's 11 and this is a product to like what are you yeah, you're going to say, no, fuck you, little what? 11-year-old child. It's God's will. It's God's will. Go find yourself a husband. Well, I guess because of our child bride laws, she can do that. Anyway. Buh. Buh, indeed. But yeah. the, point, the point is, it's really uh, reductive to just be like, well, why don't we just start killing mentally challenged people? It's like, because that's not what this, that's not what anyone's fucking saying, you weirdo. That's not what's happening. I will be very curious, yeah, to Women see don't what happens do with that. this. Women don't, like, that's the exact case that they brought up. It was like the wafflers who were, mm, I don't know. Mm, I don't, you know, no, I don't want this baby. I don't like stretch marks. That was, that. I keep bringing that up because that was one of the instances that this person said. Yeah. They were like, a woman can, if she can do it for any reason, she can just decide she doesn't like her stretch marks. And I'm like, what do you think? Nobody does that. This is the thing. You're inventing these weird situations that don't exist. And so you're going to punish other people for this imaginary, weird, dark fantasy of yours that women are just murderous 
evil people who want to who are so vain that we would we would terminate a pregnancy over stretch marks well of course people like that think (gasps) that about women but especially if you have a penis and you have no idea the the what goes into being pregnant i mean i don't know what goes into being pregnant but i'm terrified enough of it that i know this whatever whatever might happen in that realm like that's not something I could take lightly I know that about myself but like I don't know if you if you never ever have to contemplate the idea of being pregnant then you never have to contemplate any of the other things that are associated with that people don't even understand what gynecological care is no of course not because this this particular person and I will say he was overall very respectful. He wasn't like screamy, ranty. He was making some pretty wild like uh, comparisons, but he was overall very respectful of me as a person. And so the conversation ended very civilly. But um, what he fuck? What was I saying? He was he was um, basically saying he was like, well, now they took the term doctor out of it, so you can just get an abortion from anyone. And I'm like. First of all, no, you can't. <laughs> and he's like, well, then why did they remove the word doctor? It's like, well, because what they want to make happen is so that other gynecological providers who are not MDs, like nurse practitioners, who if you're four weeks pregnant and you want to just take a pill and, and terminate your pregnancy, that is that is a, a psychological decision that a nurse practitioner is perfectly capable of handling. Yeah. And But, you know, I, I said because I basically just said because nurse practitioners and he was like, oh, so you're telling me if you're nine months pregnant and decide that you want to have an abortion, that's not a decision that you shouldn't talk to a doctor about. It was like, that's a decision that you would have to talk to a doctor about because there are very, very few practitioners who are qualified to do late term abortions. So you would have to talk. It's a surgical procedure at that point, or you have to deliver a stillborn. Right. Like, both of those things require doctors. Right. With other what procedures. What are you talking about? Yeah. With other procedures, we ha- you can't have anyone off the street perform surgery. Well, this opens the door to back alley abortions. How? When you're literally making it easier for people to have access to quality health care. How do you not see that, that restricting abortion is what encourages back alley abortions? How do you not see that? What, what was funny, to, and so I wanted to be like... I wanted to tell him, like, most of my gynecological care comes from people who aren't doctors. But that's because they're they're perfectly qualified to do what they're doing because I haven't yeah. had a pregnancy yet. I haven't, you know, anything like that. Nurse practitioners most of the time. Yep. And it's perfectly fine. And yeah. they're very capable and know a lot. Yep. So you clearly have no frame of reference for that. But I can tell you as a person with a uterus and a vagina who's had to have care for those things. We've gone on for so long about this. But anyway, but it's just a very important, like, thing. Like, don't talk to me about what you think gynecological care should be when you don't even fucking know. You have no idea. But I don't go, like, I don't see a doctor. He's ever. a man, Deanna. He knows. He's a guy. Of course he's. He's, he's got all the answers. And the, a different conversation at a different time. I was texting you about this at one point. One of my uh, male f- 
Facebook friends, I won't go into any more detail than that, was basically saying like, well, yeah, I mean, I think abortion's fine in certain cases. I just don't want women to use abortion as birth control. And I'm like, I was like, I was like, literally no one does that. And and he was like, well, I know a few women. I'm like, well, just because you know a few women who've had a couple of abortions. And like, that's the most expensive fucking birth control on the planet. Also, what are you talking about? Like, I know a few women who do. It's like, no, you no, don't. No, you don't. You are fucking lying. That doesn't happen. God. God damn it. Also, I- do you know the answer to that problem? Better sex education Give people contraception so that they're not forced to just have sex without any sort of like thought to the consequences of what might happen. You got me jonesing for chocolate now that I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm done screaming. (laughs) Ben had to turn (laughs) the volume down on my mic because Jesus Christ. Anyway, I'm done. But this is this is a big deal, and I thought it was very important, and I think that it's great, and I, I wanted to give some frame of, of reference, some context. And I'm happy to have conversations with people who, who understand how nuanced it is, but maybe fall on the other side and want to talk to me about it. Like, I, I, I am a vegan, so I understand that I have kind of niche sort of views on certain things about about sentience and and yes i but the point is it's not it's not about you it's not about anyone except for the person that has to have this conversation with someone right (sighs) and see i'm glad that we're talking about it because it is a current issue Mm -hmm. and because people are so grossly misinformed and and it's really unfortunate that it's the misinformation that fuels everything about abortion in our in our legislature like Mm -hmm. uh i don't yeah we could go on and on but i'm i'm just glad that i'm glad that uh it's certainly something that's relevant i think to the things we discuss on this podcast but you gotta say i'm glad i'm glad you bought brought up agna dicey oh yeah (laughs) because it's been going on for thousands of years (laughs) I mean, that's how you know that it's not, at its core, really about child murder for a lot of people. I think uh, unconsciously it is about needing to control the female form, the female body in some way and not trusting women with that very uh, powerful decision. I mean, bringing life into the world is a powerful thing and, and it's one thing men can't do and so being able to control women when they don't want to do that or want to do that in a specific way is important to them and and let's not even get into the intersectionality of it all right now even if if abortion is 100 percent illegal in any and all cases that rich women can go can get still it. go get one anyway and are encouraged by their families yeah oh my god yeah Thank you so much for listening to Cunts Unplugged. Uh, you know, do your thing. <laughs> <Good start>. uh, <laughs> don't forget to uh, rate, review, subscribe. You can go back over to our original Good Witches, Bad Bitches content whenever you so choose. And hopefully you enjoyed this little bonus. And uh, if you didn't, don't add us because you chose to listen.
Thanks very much. <laughs> That's so ridiculous to say. <laughs> Don't add us because you chose to listen. We warned you. We warned it's you. It's cunts unplugged over here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Peace out. Peace out, witches. Bye. Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm-hmm. If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, mm-hmm. all of that. It's great. Yes. And you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same. And we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBpodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. Hey guys, you know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, the link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See, see how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our Ko-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> so that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, coffee start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pine. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.